years before Christ, the, uh, the empire that ruled the known world was Babylon. And, and Babylon came to Israel, overthrew Jerusalem, and took a number of the best and brightest young men from Jerusalem back to Babylon. And there they were to learn Babylonian literature and language and culture to become leaders um, in the empire. In the book of Daniel, we read about and we know the names of at least four of those young men. Kids, 10 and under, can you name any of those young men? Shout it out. Okay, you got them all. Shadrach, <laughs> smart. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. We, we first meet these young men in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, they're taken to Babylon, and they are um, placed in their three-year training program. And as part of the program, they stand up to the king, and they, uh, they tell him they can't do some of the things that they're requested to do. The king is impressed with their faith and with their courage, with their confidence. And by the end of Daniel chapter 2, those four guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, have been made leaders in Babylon. They've been given positions of importance, positions of authority. And that brings us to, to Daniel chapter 3, the passage that Leanne, Mrs. Wickline, just read to us a few moments ago. In, Jan, in Daniel chapter 3, we see the story of this statue that King Nebuchadnezzar built um, out on the plain. This is located where Iraq is located today. And he's, he built a statue that was 90 feet tall. And kids, nine and under, what was it made out of? What? That was right. What was it? Gold, that's right. Made out of gold, or at least covered with gold. And the instruction was, whenever you hear all those instruments that Mrs. Wickline had to keep reading, um, <laughs> you're to bow down and worship this idol. So the dedication ceremony took place. And certain officials noticed that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down to the statue. They told the king. The king was angry. And their punishment was kids nine and under. What was the punishment? What was the punishment? They were going to be thrown in a furnace. That's right. Oh. <laughs> And I think as you read this, the, the, the king at first is mad, angry, but then he realizes who these guys are. They're leaders in his kingdom, and he brings them in. He wants to make sure they understand. So he repeats it to them, and he gives them, basically he says, I'm going to give you another chance. And they say to him, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. He will rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. 
That's all the story we're going to cover today. There's more to the story, and if you want to, if you want to find out what happens, you can read Daniel chapter 3 and read the rest of the story. Not during the service, afterwards. Okay. Um, but essentially, these guys stand up in front of the king and they say, look, we know you're the king of Babylon, but you're not our king. You're not the king. So, being Anglicans, we recognize and we, uh, we, we follow the Christian calendar. Next week is the first Sunday of the calendar, of the church calendar. And what do we call that Sunday? Anybody know? Yes. Advent. That's right. And starting with Advent, we're going to go through a number of really great seasons here at Incarnation. We're going to go through Advent and then this other one. What, what's the next one? Christmas. Christmas that's right. It was for the kids. <laughs> and then Epiphany, and then Lent, and then Easter, and then Pentecost. And following the calendar takes us through the year. Today is, because next, year, next week is the first Sunday, today is the last Sunday. And the last Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. So today we celebrate that Christ is King. And I think it's appropriate that while we're here on Christ the King Sunday... We've also come to the point in our series that, uh, that Pastor Aubrey's been speaking on, on the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. We've been going through it one phrase at a time. And today's phrase is the last phrase in the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. A threefold confession where each week we state what is true about God. So when you think about it, this phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, is, in a nutshell, the heart of worship. We gather here every Sunday to profess, to proclaim together before God that God is God and that Jesus is the King. Certainly others can come in and join us and listen to that profession. But our audience is God, and we confess before Him that He is the King, that He has all the power, that He deserves all the glory. If you read the message, this particular phrase is translated this way. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're ablaze in beauty. So we see this bizarre and fascinating picture of worship that Hansen read for us in Revelation chapter 4. It's a vision that John, the author of the book, had, not of what's going to happen at some point in the distant future, but of what's true and happening right now. Aubrey, when he speaks, often talks about heaven and earth not being these two places between which there's a great gulf. Heaven and earth are both right here. They're both at hand. And there's a a veil, if you can picture it that way, some sort of curtain that hangs between heaven and earth. We can see and taste and touch this place we call earth. Heaven is here as well, but it's kind of, it's hidden. It's behind this veil. And when John had his vision of heaven, what happened was essentially 
this veil was open and he saw into this other dimension that we call heaven. And he saw an amazing sight. So you know how when you have a dream, it's very real to you. When you try to describe it to somebody, the words you have really sometimes can't describe what you saw. You try to describe it and then you realize how inadequate the words are. So John sees something and then he uses English. Well, actually, he didn't use English. But we have it in English as he tried to write down with human words what it is he saw. And it's kind of strange. He talks about, what, emeralds and glass and um, trumpets and crowns and gold and light and thunder and marvelous creatures. And all he can think of that is rich and kingly and glorious The people that are present in his vision are all regal and beautiful. And yet all they can say is, look at God. He is worthy to receive all glory and honor and power. And each week when we pray the Lord's Prayer, when we come to this doxology and we say, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, what we're doing is we are joining with these folks on the other side of the veil And saying the same thing. When we confess, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. In Jesus' day, Israel, where Jesus lived, was a small and um, subjugated country. They'd been occupied for generations by that time. And at that point, they were occupied by Rome, the Roman Empire, which was the empire that ruled the world at that time. The people despised Herod. He was kind of a puppet king um, who kept his job because he stayed out of Rome's way. They despised the high taxes, taking money out of their economy, shipping the money off to Rome, to the Gentiles, where the money was used for pagan and lavish goings-on in Rome. They despised the merciless soldiers, the public crucifixions, the false peace of Rome, Pax Romana a peace that was imposed on them. While the Jews lived in scarcity and fear, the powerful and wealthy who were in bed with Rome enjoyed the good life, palaces and fortifications and theaters and fountains and all the stuff you read about in the history books. Rome was all about kingdom and power and glory. The empire before them, Greece, elevated philosophy and religion, not Rome. Sure, they kept around the Greek gods and they renamed them and they had religion for the masses. But Rome was thirsty for conquest and victory, for parades of prisoners through the streets, for entertainment in the Colosseum. And it is in this setting that Jesus brought his message. Repent, change your mind, change the way you live, because God's kingdom is right here. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus' discussion with Pilate that Aubrey read this morning, was a discussion about kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. My kingdom is from another place. If we'd kept reading that story where Jesus was taken away from Pilate and then eventually he was brought back in, they have another discussion in chapter 19. And that discussion is about power. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you 
from above. And it was in this setting, in the Roman Empire, that the early church followed the Lord's example and prayed each time they met, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. To speak of God's kingdom, power, and glory seriously confronted the principalities and power and politics of that day. So, fast forward 2,000 years, the challenge for us today is to hear the Lord's Prayer, to hear this doxology for what it really is. You know, after 2,000 years, we live in a place where the Lord's Prayer is sold on knickknacks, on posters with really pretty pictures. It's posted on Facebook. And it's really hard for us sometimes, I think, to hear the dangerousness, to hear the revolution in the Lord's Prayer. Here at Incarnation, we recite this prayer every week, and it becomes rote. It can become tame. You know, it's not unusual for revolutionary things to, over time, become establishment. Um, Paul and I went to a concert a couple months ago in Charlottesville with a guy named Steve Earle. A lot of you don't know who Steve Earle is. Back in the 80s, he was kind of, you know, outlaw country or... Southern Rock, and he was um, ended up in prison. And he was, you know, all his songs are about revolution and all that. But over time, you know, Mick Jagger becomes what a knight in the king in the Queen's service. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen becomes a spokesman in a presidential campaign. Uh, the Beatles' song "Revolution" is used to advertise corporate products, and Steve Earle becomes an old man who charges forty dollars a ticket to play to a crowd of doctors and lawyers and city leaders, average age, 45, 50, people able to afford to show. But he's still up there on stage singing songs about revolution. So today, you know, for us, after years of church plays where we think of Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego in um, bathrobes, um, you know, or these plastic Roman... Helmets with red stuff on top. Um, those events can seem really foreign, kind of really far away. Words like worship and doxology and confession and glory and power and kingdom, when said at church, almost don't seem like real words and they don't have any power behind them. You know, President Obama is not going to build a 90 foot statue on the mall in Washington, D.C., and order everybody to worship it. This breathtaking picture in Revelation, you know, if read literally, can sound really weird, and, you know, we really don't know what to do with it. So what do we do with today? What do we do with yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? When we try to think about power and glory today, it's really easy to think about places like Washington, D.C., and New York City, and Los Angeles. Think about celebrities, and rock stars, and actors, and professional athletes, and politicians, the President of the United States, Bill Gates, RG3, that guy on the cover of People Magazine last week. But when you think, and when you think about these folks, you realize that just like Rome, there's actually plenty of kingdom, and power, and glory going on today. There's plenty of idol worship, and power grabbing and power plays and glory grabbing. And I guess I, 
we could kind of go in that direction this morning, and I could encourage you to not place your hope for salvation on whether your candidate won or lost the election a couple weeks ago. You know, God is our king. Like Nebuchadnezzar, the U.S. government has its own kingdom, and it's not our kingdom. It's not God's kingdom. But even thinking about power and glory in that context seems remote, too far away from our lives, from our place, from Harrisonburg. So I want to move to thinking about power and glory for just a few minutes, a little closer to home. We all take interest in power and glory. We want to succeed. We want to get ahead. We want to be noticed. We want, we, we, we want significance. And certainly the desire to succeed or have our lives count for something is not in itself a bad thing. But think how quickly it turns into temptation to be proud, to be selfish, to be unloving. Henry Nouwen described the three great temptations for all of us as power, fame, and success. It's not that we crave lots of power and glory, just a little bit. We want to dominate others. We want to be in charge. We want to have the last word. Or at least, we want to be not told what to do. We work for accolades and appreciation from others. And deep inside, we're disappointed when they don't give us the recognition we deserve. You know, you can win a major award at a film festival. And not many people seem to know about it or mention it. (laughs) And we're disappointed. We drop names of important people we've met or we've known or we've worked with. We casually mention how early we rise to pray. We talk pridefully about our careers or the grades we get at school or our promotions or our past successes or our future projects. Each conversation offers us another opportunity for us to exalt ourselves in the eyes of others. Power and glory and our little kingdom grows. Being a Christian doesn't mean that I have to figure out how God fits into my life, into my story, into my kingdom. Christianity isn't five principles for prosperity or three steps to personal happiness or seven keys to a happy marriage. Church and and worship, what we do here together, isn't about what I get out of it. That's backwards. Being a follower of Christ means that my life fits into his story. We come in here on Sunday mornings and we surrender and we say, you are the king, not me. You can do anything you want. I can't. You are everything. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The hard part's living that out, of course, in our relationships at home, with our husband, with our wife, with our children, at school, with classmates and with teachers, at work, on the basketball team, here at Incarnation, driving down the road, shopping at Walmart. So if I can encourage you to do, to, to, to do anything this afternoon, I'd encourage you to take a few moments and get away to someplace quiet and think about this. What does living this out, this Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What does that look like in your life? With your personality, 
in your vocation with the challenges you face. Tomorrow when you go to class, how can you live in that reality? Tomorrow when you drive your kids from school to lessons to practice to dinner to other lessons, what does this look like? Tomorrow when you step into your office or you you go out onto the floor at work and carry out your work, how can you live out this confession? Sometimes it looks like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up when everybody else is doing something else. And you might take some heat. (laughs) Always it looks like Jesus washing someone else's feet in an act of unconditional and self-sacrificial love. It is only when we relinquish our own pursuit of our own power and glory of building and fortifying our kingdom that we can know the freedom and joy and blessing of living life in God's kingdom, of knowing his power and seeing his glory. Amen.